following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Today is going to be part one of a two-part sermon on the topic of decision-making, which means that if you've made the decision to be here today, you're going to make the decision to come back next week, too, uh, so you can hear the end of this. We're going to look at four principles over these two messages. We're only going to look at one today, and the other three will be next week. So just kind of know what's coming here. But we're going to begin by reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 10. <clears throat> you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness and bringing us back another Sunday to uh, study your word. And we pray now, Lord, that you will be convicting us this morning of our wrong beliefs, our wrong understanding, our wrong pursuits often, Lord, and even how we go about making decisions and uh, using worldly wisdom instead of your perfect wisdom, your perfect word. Convict us of this today and set us on the right path as we begin. I pray that between this Sunday and next, you will help us rethink perhaps some assumptions that are wrong, and we'll use this time to give us some confidence in you, trusting you for all the decisions in life that come our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't like to uh, brag very often about my personal reading, my uh, personal study, that kind of thing. I'm, I know you all know that I'm super intelligent, and so I don't like to make you feel don't laugh. Uh, I don't like to make you feel dumb or anything uh, with the heady kind of books that I like to read, but I'm going to make an exception this morning because the other day I was perusing a uh, theological, a rather weighty theological tome titled Healing Oils of the Bible by Dr. David Stewart, a compendium, if you would, of everything the Bible has to say about essential oils. Now, first of all, I was shocked that such a book even existed because I thought I already knew everything the Bible said about essential oils, which is, that's it, right there. You got it all. You didn't even have to buy the book, and you got it for free. Uh, but, I, you know, nevertheless, somehow this guy was able to fill 325 pages worth of material out of all the things the Bible says about essential oil. So I was shocked. Uh, second, though, after skimming the table of contents, I was quite interested to learn that there is a direct connection. Who knew? But there was a direct connection between essential oils and exorcism. It's true. 
I never knew this. Uh, this is not something that was taught to me either in Bible college or in seminary. Maybe I was sick that day. I don't know. I missed that class. But uh, Dr. Stewart proves it in his book. He says, and I quote, demonic spirits don't like essential oils, which kind of made me wonder if I was demonic. I didn't know. But anyway, maybe I'm possessed. They are repelled by them. Their high vibrations put there by God, okay, are too much and make them want to leave. Those experienced in the administration of therapeutic oils, especially when used to help resolve and release buried emotions, can find themselves encountering demons repulsed by the high energies of the atomic, excuse me, aromatic molecules. And this is my favorite line. This is not likely to happen. Because I'm picturing the guy sitting there and he's typing this right and he's sitting, he's making stuff up as he's, he's like, what am I going to do if somebody like asks me about this later? He's like, oh, I know, this is not likely to happen. But if it does, and you think the poor person on the other end of that reading that, they're like, oh no, like they're going to go put some essential oils and someone like, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. They didn't have any come out. Uh, Not likely to happen, but if it does, know that by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, you will be guided as to what to do. Intense prayer and calling on the name of Jesus Christ will always prevail in such situations. And all God's people said, hey, we can go home now, right? It's, we're done. That was, I got a warm feeling right here, but it could be because I put an essential oil there earlier before I showed up. I would definitely file that little uh, nugget of knowledge under the category or heading of uh, things I did not learn in Bible college and seminary. Uh, But I will tell you something that I did learn in Bible college or seminary that, funny enough, has a direct connection back into this very silly opening illustration, and that was the doctrine of the complete sufficiency of Scripture. And I was trying to remember this week when that idea of the complete sufficiency of Scripture first really hit me, and I think it had to do or came sometime um, during my junior or sophomore year of college. I know it was the end of a year because my mom and her friend had driven up from Wisconsin to take me home. And I remember spending about, I don't know, half of that 20 plus hour drive from Wisconsin back to North Carolina, just thinking very deeply about all of the ramifications of what it means to say that the scriptures are sufficient for everything we need for life and faith. You see, I had only been a believer for about two years at that point, And I had just never given any thought, really, to that particular subject of, of all that that meant. And yet Paul makes it crystal clear here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, two very no, well-known verses I'm sure most of you know, um, that it, you know, God's inspired word, the scriptures, make us complete. They make us equipped for every good work. And I want you to think about that for just like, they make you equipped for every good work? I mean, what that means then is that God has given us in his written word absolutely everything. Think about that, folks. Everything that we need for life and practice. And particularly for someone like myself who was coming out of a Pentecostal charismatic background, you know, that idea of the scripture, or sufficiency of scripture, that was something that really rocked my world at that particular point. Because coming from the, the circles that I grew up in, the, the scriptures were never talked about as being sufficient. I'm not saying that that phrase was never used. Maybe it was used here and there, but I can tell you for a fact that if it was used in the circles I grew up in, 
it only meant that the scriptures were generally sufficient, not that they were completely uh, sufficient. Though, as a side note, you know, I made a joke a moment ago, I'm very intelligent. I'm actually not. I'm actually very, very simple. And to my simple mind, when you talk about something being sufficient, it just means that it's enough, right? That it's all you need. And to me, when I think about the sufficiency of scripture and the scriptures being enough and being all I need, that's an either-or kind of doctrine. Either the scriptures are sufficient, they're all we need, or they're not, and I need something else. They're not enough, and I need a little bit more. So, you know, that, of course, is where Dr. Stewart's very enlightening book on essential oils comes in, and I'm not picking on just him. It's other books like it, because he can sit there and just make stuff up and, you know, add all the stuff to Scripture, and thousands of people will buy that book. It had uh, 708, if I remember correctly, four-and-a-half-star reviews on Amazon, and if only 10% of the people review a book, that means 7,000 copies were sold. People read this book. They went through it. All the comments were very helpful. Uh, they, were, they said they were very, the book was very helpful. And yet I imagine that most people never even batted an eye at what he said. It didn't bother them at all. Now, why am I focused on the sufficiency of Scripture this morning? Well, as you know, I'm working through a little mini-series here on things that God has been teaching me over these past three years, and I'm trying to just give them to you because I thought, it's not just I that's gonna, or me that's going to wrestle with this stuff. You know, you're going to wrestle with these same things at some point in the future. So if I can be a help to you in that process, I would love to do that. And so we started this two weeks ago by looking at the topic of fear, anxiety, insecurity, because I've been wrestling with those feelings, as I said, more in the past three years than I ever have before. And so I just wanted to examine my own heart, understand as best I could biblically what was going on so that I could respond to it. So that's what we did two weeks ago. And then we took a break last week because of Easter. And now we come to the second topic that I want to share with you. And that's the topic of decision-making. How do we go about making decisions in life in a truly biblical manner? Or another way we could ask this is, how do we know God's will for our lives? How do we know God's will for our lives? And we can ask that question, excuse me, either in a general sense or in a very specific sense about maybe some issue or thing that's kind of presented itself to us in life. How do we know what it is that God wants us to do? And before we begin to develop this, let's just recognize at the outset that being concerned about or interested in knowing the will of God, again, either generally speaking or in relation to a specific context, is something that is unique to us as believers in, you know, in the process of decision-making. Because an unbeliever who's faced with a major decision in life, they're not going to sit there and go, well, what does God want here? You know, who should I marry God? What job should I take? Where should I live? What should I do with my life? They're not going to ask these kinds of questions. At least they shouldn't, logically speaking. The only group that's going to care about this question is us. And the reason we care about this question is because the Scriptures teach us to care about this question. An example, Paul, for, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, and so from the day we heard, it means heard about the, the Colossians' acceptance of the gospel, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So here's Paul praying for the Colossian believers that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's their purpose, that they would be fully pleasing to him. Well, is this not what we would want to? Would we not want to be you know, filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom? Would we not want to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, to live our lives in a way that's fully pleasing to him? Well, 
you know, of course, that's, that's part of the goal of the Christian life. The answer to all of those questions is yes, and none of us, I think, I hope, struggle with those particular questions. It's the next question that comes after those that we struggle with, and that question is how? Like, how, how do we go about doing this? How do we know what God wants us to do, either generally speaking or in some major decision? Well, before I begin to answer that question for you, let me give a little bit of credit where credit is due. There's a very helpful book on this subject that was written back in 1980 titled Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. Uh, when that book first came out, it was somewhat controversial because Friesen was attacking the standard or traditional view of like understanding God's will, finding God's will that prevailed and quite frankly still prevails in American Christianity. And he was presenting a really radical alternative view of, of how you even think through that. And it sounded and still sounds crazy to a lot of folks, except for the very small fact that he was actually attempting to be biblical. He was actually attempting to be honest with the topic rather than just parroting what American cultural Christianity seems unwilling to address and move away from. And in his book, he gives four principles for making uh, decisions in a, in a biblical and godly manner. And they're so helpful, I can't improve on them. So I'm going to do what I've done before. I'm going to kind of use his framework, use his bones for this sermon and next week, but I'm going to attach some of my own meat to it. That said, if anything I say sounds good and logical and biblical, assume it's his. If anything sounds heretical or dumb, assume it's mine. And that should be a pretty safe assumption. So how do we go about making decisions according to God's will? Well, the first principle he gives us is the principle of obedience. The principle of obedience. And he begins that discussion by talking about what he calls the moral will of God. Now, you, of course, ask the question, what is the moral will of God? What does he mean by that? Well, he defines it this way. The moral will of God is the commands are the commands and principles which God has revealed in the Bible to teach how people ought to believe and live. And I'm going to repeat that one more time for all the people who are writing. Uh, the moral will of God are the commands or it's commands of, and principles which God has revealed in the Bible to teach how people ought to believe and live. In other words, when God gives us a command, we have to obey it. Just about that simple. And before continuing, let me just point out that really all he's doing here with this first principle is reminding us that when we say that we want to know God's will for our lives, that God has already revealed a large amount, if not all we need, we'll see in a moment, of his will for us in his word. So you say to me, Stacy, I really want to know God's will for my life. Okay, great. Read the Bible. I mean, I'm not necessarily trying to dumb it down or oversimplify it, but that's a fair answer back to you when you tell me that you want to know God's will for our life. Because if you are truly concerned with knowing God's will for your life, I'm telling you that God's word is going to be the lowest of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to finding answers to that question, okay? I mean, it's, it's been translated into English, printed, bound, and it's sitting in many of your laps right now. 66 books full of God's will for your life, right at your fingertips. 
So this is the principle of obedience in a nutshell, but of course he develops it a little more than that, and so I'm going to develop it along with him. He gives four crucial characteristics of the moral will of God that we need to be aware of. Number one, he says the moral will of God is fully revealed in the Bible. The moral will of God is fully revealed in the Bible. In other words, 100, not 90, not 95, not 99, 100% of what God wants us to know about believing and living to please him, he has already told us. And this should make sense to us because we know our God is a loving, kind father. I mean, what parent in this room would say to their children one morning, hey, kids, listen, today I want you to live your life in a manner that, you know, makes me happy. But I'm not going to tell you what that looks like today, you know. I mean, I've got like four things in mind, and if you don't do all four of these, I'm going to be really upset with you. But I'm just not going to tell you what the four things are. I hope you figure it out. Good, good luck, you know. And then no matter how much they come and they like fall on their knees in front of you, like, Father, please, and they're pleading and crying, tell me. And you're like, nope, <laughs> good luck, go figure it out. Like, none of us would do that. None of us would approach our children, not even as bosses at work, most bosses anyway, a few of them maybe, but, you know, we, we would never act like that. It doesn't even make sense. And so if I think about that in relation to God, if God wants us to do something or not do something, if God wants us to believe a certain thing or live a certain way, then, then doesn't it just make sense to your heart and mind based on everything you know in the scriptures that he would have told us what those things are? Well, of course he's told us. He's written them for us in his word. It is in the scriptures that he has given us everything we need to be complete and equipped for every good work. It means everything you need to know to make God happy is found in his word. Everything. Now, my question to you is, and do not answer this out loud, but do you really believe that? And do you really believe that? That everything you need to know to please God fully is found in his word. See, it's been my observation, and observations are worth not very much, but it's been my observation that most Christians will say they believe that. They might even think at some level that they believe that. But when it gets right down to it, they don't they don't really, truly believe that. But I would say it is true. The Bible is our final and complete authority for faith and practice. The moral will of God is fully revealed in the Bible, and 100% of what you need to know in order to please God has already been told to you in his word. Number two, the moral will of God is the expression of the character of God. The moral will of God is the expression of the character of God. And, you know, this should make sense again because God is the author of Scripture. We would expect that anything he writes or says to us will reflect his very character. Now, this is a kind of a one-off comment. It's not stated here in Scripture to prove the point I'm making now, but it does illustrate the point. I'm th talking about uh, Paul's comment in Romans chapter 7 where he's discussing the law. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he asked the question, is the law sin? And I don't have time to develop his answer nor why he asked the question in the first place. I'll give you the short version. No, it's not. Okay, so the law is not sin. In fact, by verse 12, he tells us that not only is the law not sin, but it is holy and the commandment is righteous and good. Now think about those three words. He says the law is holy, righteous, and good. 
Can you think of anything or anyone else in all of the Scripture that are de- described by all three of those adjectives together, holy, righteous, and good? I can only think of one, and that, of course, would be God himself. And again, this should make sense to our hearts and minds. If God is holy and righteous and good, then it makes sense that anything he would tell us, right, would be holy and righteous and good as well. And so Thiessen makes this point because God's moral will reflects his character. It helps to produce that same character in the life of the one who obeys it, Luke 6, 35 and 36, and leads to fullness of life, Psalm 19, 7 through 11. So the word of God reveals his character. Hold that for a moment. Number three, the moral will of God touches every aspect in every moment of life. It touches every aspect in every moment of life. And this is true because God's will encompasses more than just our, our outward or overt behavior. You know, a lot of times Christians seem to like default into thinking that God only cares about what we do with our hands and our words and our actions and and that's about as far as it goes, but that's not the case at all. God is not concerned simply with what we do. He cares equally about why we do it and how we do it. Thiessen says it like this, to put it differently, God's moral will prescribes the believer's goals and attitudes as well as his actions. It shapes his perspectives of reality, which serves as the context in which his decisions are made. Now, let's think about this issue of goals here for a moment. You know, what should the Christian's goal in life be? How do we even go about uh, determining this? Well, if I believe that God has revealed 100% of what I need to know in order to make him happy, then where am I going to turn to answer that question about, you know, what my goals in life should be? Well, would I not turn to God's word then? Would I not go there to see what, what is it that God wants me to do? Well, if I do that, you know, Will I find anything? I don't know. I I combed the scriptures diligently. It took me all week to try to find any clue of maybe what God might want out of a believer's life. I found a couple of examples. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Okay, there's a goal. (laughs) Whatever you do to the most mundane things of life, if you are doing it, you should be doing it in such a way that it It glorifies God. The glory of God is a goal of the Christian life. Here's another one. Uh, Colossians 1, 28, 29, Romans 14, 19, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. I'll read that one only. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know what that means? It means that one of your goals as a Christian is to be a minister. You're going to be an ambassador. You're going to be proclaiming Christ. This is just what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. You're going to have that goal. Here's another one. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the, another goal is to, to make disciples. Evangelize the lost. Anywhere God puts you, go do that. Titus 3.8, another one. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What, doing good works is a goal of the Christian life? Yeah. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that doing good is something God has prepared beforehand that we would go walk in those things. Well, what good works? He doesn't say... (laughs) He just says, that's the goal, go do them. One last one, just again, as an example, Colossians 1.10, we read part of this earlier. Here's the last of it. We're gonna walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So being fruitful and increasing in the knowledge of God is a goal of the Christian. I could keep going. But I think you're starting to get the idea that even when I come to this issue of goals, I can come back to God's word and say, well, what, what exactly should my goals in life be? What, what should I be focused on? And as I go, I see that there's a lot of things that will tell me why I should be doing anything that I do, whether or not the scriptures speak about the specific topic or not. The goals I have in mind in all of life are going to be governed by scripture. What about, what about our attitudes as we do these things? Even our attitudes are supposed to be driven by God's word. For example, we're supposed to love Mark 12, have humility, Philippians 2, gratitude, Colossians 3, integrity, diligence, eagerness, generosity, courage, submission, contentment, joy, just to name a few. All of these things address how we go about doing these things. And so, so what it's reminding us of here is that God is not simply concerned with what we do. Is he concerned about what we do? Yes. He is concerned about what we do, but it's not just that. He's also focused on why we do it and how we do it. To sum it up, it is because God's moral will prescribes our goals, attitudes, actions, and perspective that it touches every aspect and moment of life from the most mundane daily task you can imagine to the biggest decisions of life. God's word touches all of it. And so now with those three stated, number four, since the moral will of God contains his complete revelation for faith and life, since it expresses God's own character, and since it touches every aspect and moment of life, the first three, it is fully able to equip believers for every good work. It is able to equip believers for absolutely every good work. All scripture, it is given by God. It is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for proof, for correction, training, all these words from all the various translations that come into my mind at this moment. And it will make you complete It'll make you complete and equipped for every good work. Do you really believe that? That's the question. Thiessen says, our response to such abundant guidance from God, and we should probably pause there and recognize that a lot of us don't really feel that God gives abundant providence, but that's our problem, not his. 66 books of God's will sitting at your fingertips. Our response to such abundant guidance from God should be obvious. First, we need to learn what God has said. Second, we need to do what God has said. So we need to learn and we need to do. And it really is that serious, uh, simple. So look, I, I get it. I'm with you. We've all been in those moments where we've just like sat there and prayed like, God, just speak. I wish you would just speak to me audibly right now. Just tell me what it is you want me to do in this particular situation. You know, and how great would that be? But, but can I remind us that God's actually already done that? He's already, already done that. In his word, in his Bible, the next time you're sitting there and you're wanting to hear God speak, can I say to you very simply, read? And you might respond, well, Cece, I don't really know where to go. I wish I, I had some better sense of direction. Well, can I suggest that maybe sometimes that's more a reflection of our own um, laziness and being good students of God's word all the time. You know, if we were as, as committed to prayer and, and being in God's word in moments of decision, in moments of need, 
as we are, uh, you know, or excuse me, in moments where there isn't a, a moment of need and a moment of decision, if we were as committed then as we are when there is a moment of need, I have a feeling that when the moment of need actually showed up, we would know what to do. We'd have a lot better idea. We'd know where to go and what to think. Um, the time, folks, the time to prepare yourself for biblical decision-making is now. Not when the decision is looming. The time to prepare is now. So learn, study, read, know what God has said so you can obey it. And then second, as he said, obey it, right? When the moment comes, you obey. If it's a black and white, you know, do or don't kind of situation, well then do or don't. Humble yourself, submit, and obey. But even when it's not a black and white issue of scripture, then, you know, those biblical goals and attitudes should direct and guide us in the decision along with the principles we'll look at a little bit more next week. And whatever those are, then again, we humble ourselves, submit, and pray. Thiessen, one last time, quote, as one observes the decision-making practices of people, and he's talking about American Christians, so he's talking about you and I, take this very personally. Um, as one observes the decision-making practices of people, one is forced to the sobering conclusion that the greatest impediments to making good decisions are ignorance of God's word and stubborn resistance to God's will. You want to know what your problem is in decision-making? You're ignorant and stubborn. That's what he says are the greatest problems. You know, how hypocritical. I, say, I think this to myself. I've thought it so many times. How hypocritical is it in the moment of need to come begging to God and asking for his guidance in the day before I completely ignored him? Week before, you didn't care at all about what he had to say. And now all of a sudden, you're in a moment of need and you're like, God, show me. Talk, tell me, leave me. No, no, no. I'm ignorant by my own laziness, and I'm stubborn because I'm stubborn. The Babylon Bee, that trusted source of satirical Christian news, had a great headline about a year ago. It said, man desperately pleads for God to speak to him while dust-covered Bible sits six feet away. You know, how cutting is that? But how true? How true? Pleading for God to speak with us while our dust-covered Bible sits six feet away. In the end, this all comes back to the question, do you really believe? Do you really believe that the Bible is sufficient, enough to help you in any and every area of life? If so, then the very first principle you'll employ in making any every decision of life is this principle of obedience that we looked at today. And if you come back next week, we will look at the other three. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, please, uh, Forgive us for our hypocrisy and how we desperately want you in times of need but then ignore you. The other times, I'm reminded of what we, we saw last Sunday, uh, encouraged by that passage that you know our frame and you remember that we are dust. Because we are, Lord, we, we wander away and we, we think we know best and we want to live as if we're in control and if we're wise, but we're not. And the moments the decision come and they just remind us of that. So help us to be faithful students of your word, living in light of the real, true, complete sufficiency of Scripture. And I pray that between this Sunday and next, you will help us to get put together a biblical understanding of what it means to make decisions in light of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.